Thank you very much, Greg, and thank you all for coming tonight. Uh, what I hope to do is in a few moments available to me, and I've been told I have to stick strictly to time, I want to look at what populism is and what it means, as well as say a few words about its causes and consequences. Now, whatever else it may be, populism is no term for scholars. It has become an all-purpose insult declared to dismiss one's opponents as merely pandering to the electorate's basic instincts. I gave the mood of the electorate, you shamelessly faced both, and she is an irresponsible populist. But even putting the sound current abuse aside, it is hardly easy to fit within the same conceptual box phenomena as diverse as the American discussion I want to start by describing the key features I see when I squint at the populist family, much as one would at a cubist painting. I will, in other words, try to set out the ideal type of populism, realizing that each instance will depart from that ideal type in potentially important ways. The first and most obvious feature of populism is the appeal to the people, both as the sole source of legitimacy and as the repository of political virtue. But the fact that the people is, of course, hopelessly vague. Indeed, that is why the concept is so politically useful. No wonder that when the 17th century royalist, Sir Robert Filmer, wanted to attack the youth made of the nation by Charles the First's adversary, he was able even then to point out what the term the people mean is not agreed upon. What is clear is that populists don't use the people as a synonym for the population or the electorate. Rather, it serves to distinguish what used to be called the common people from the rest. That usage is consistent with ancient authority. In Republican Rome, populists often referred to the plebeian citizens by contrast with the patrician class and popularities were politicians who made a point of trying to the crowd. Since then, however, the people has become a shorthand in populist rhetoric for those whose views and interests properly matter, as compared to the elite and their allies or lackeys, such as undesirable aliens. A second feature, closely related to the truth, is the belief in an irreconcilable conflict that pits the people against the elite, a term no better defined than the people itself. The perpetual antithesis between these forces is viewed as the key to politics. As a morbid growth on the body politic, it is the elite which are responsible for the people's woes. For the American Jacksonians of the 1820s, the enemy was the money power, directed by well-born cosmopolitans. For activists in the newly formed Republican Party of the 1850s, it was the slave power of the South that throttled the civil liberties and drove down the earnings of Northern whites. In today's world, the monetist of the common man is typically presented as an international caste which benefits from globalization and immigration 
at ordinary folk expense. Third, though it's not pretty actionable that malevolent group, the problems facing the nation would, in the populist imagination, be readily solved. If they are not, it is because the vested interest stands in the way. Before the governing cabal, quite a frightened voter by claiming that the proposed cure that the populace put forward would produce catastrophic results. But that merely confirms their dishonesty. As one Peron put it in 1952, everyone will try to frighten me, the people, with the risk of economic collapse. But those are just lies, for there is nothing stronger than the economy, which everyone fears because they don't understand it. Fourth, since it is the elite that prevents solutions from being implemented, the first step must be to cut the cabals out of the body politics. The great Algerian stable at Washington once painted Andrew Jackson's supporters cried in 1824. Train the swamp, Donald Trump proclaimed in 2016. And just as Jackson was the man for his time, Fred Trump is the man to do it now. However, as not to do once a month, political revolutions are hardly a tea party. They demand a history. A first feature of populism is consequently its heroic conception of the political process. These are incarnated in a more or less heroic leader. Populism is a form of redemptive rather than pragmatic politics. It espouses a personless style that veers to internal as well as external authoritarianism, with the movement being subservient to, and in some cases little more than the creature of, the charismatic founder, a feature as evident in Victor Kiedelow's Superstadle movement as it was in the Argentina of Montevideo. Moreover, the scale of the political transformation populist seat is such as to make constitutional niceties an intolerable impediment. Populism's preferred mode of government, and this is its sixth feature, is the plebiscite, the direct and mediated appeal to the people for their yay or nay. The mechanisms of parliamentary government, with its established political parties, are viewed as part of the problem while the courts, which can override the plebiscitary dynamic, are invariably derided as undemocratic. It is consequently no surprise that Andrew Jackson was one of the few, if not the only president, to essentially completely ignore the Supreme Court's decision. While George Wallace only campaigned for the presidency in 1968, did not mince words. Held, he said. All we have to do right now is march on the federal courthouses, lock up a few of those judges, and by sunset there'd be a revolution from one corner of this nation to the other. We could turn this country right around. Nor is it surprising that Donald Trump has shown no hesitation in attacking the federal judiciary while undermining constitutional courts become a common habit in those countries of Central and Eastern Europe 
with populists are challenging at the helm. Philly's six features the appeal to the people, the denunciation of elites, the belief in simple solutions that can be implemented once the swamp of the party system has been drained, the personalist and authoritarian leadership style, and the preference for plebiscitary, unmediated political government untrammeled by constitutional niceties are, in my view, the canonical core of populism and have long been so. Given that contention, there are many movements that are irresponsible, reprehensible, or even utterly repellent that are not popular. That is the case for fascist movements, such as Lobbyists in Hungary and Marxist parties, such as Syriza in Greece and to some extent Kabelos in Spain. But even with the exclusion of those parties, from the family tree, a well-stocked trove of populist parties and movements remain. Their characteristics have varied over the years. Populism has, for instance, recently added to its traditional nationalism a strident opposition to globalization and an equally strident support for protectionism. And it has also varied significantly as between the different parts of the world. It would be impossible to do justice to their geographical diversity in the time available. Nonetheless, simplifying somewhat, four subspecies are worth distinguishing. The first and arguably the oldest of the traditions that remain active is that found in the United States. Americans were the first in modern times to achieve popular government and therefore the first to experience the sense that the people's government had somehow escaped from the control of the people. The populist response to their disillusionment dates back at least to Andrew Jackson and the presidential campaigns of the 1820s. It is hard to find a time since then when the embers of the populist fires Jackson lit have been entirely extinguished. On the contrary, from the haughty financier wrapping stains of death around small farmers, to the stout industrialist with his top hat crashing with the firm-jawed, well-muscled working man, and on to the over-educated, amoral, limousine liberals who scoff at the God-fearing nuclear family in its modest home, the tropes of populism have been the hardiest perennials of American political record. Yet American populism has, at least until recent decades, three features which made it internationally distinctive. To begin with, it was always framed as seeking a return to the nation's founding creed, which the corrupt elite were cast as transgressive. It has been revolutionary in the ancient of restoring order to a world that is out of joint. Second, American populism has been terminated with moral overtones, which assimilate its mission to a spiritual crusade. And third, it has been unremittingly optimistic, with its belief that mass democracy can topple even the 
puffiest fuzz, meaning that it has lacked the sense of constraint that propels populists elsewhere towards violence. Those features, however, are by no means as pronounced today as they once were. It was a world of difference between William Jennings Bryan's famous Cross of Gold speech in 1896, which situated populism within the self-confidence of an aspiring nation and the dystopian rhetoric of President Trump's inaugural address. There is nothing, Brian maintained, that ordinary Americans, once mobilized, cannot accomplish. Now, in Trump's inaugural address, they are cast as and reduced to victims. A second strand of populism is that flourishing in Western Europe. There, the rhetoric of populism has waxed and waned, at times disappearing from the scene. Foucault, briefly, in the 1950s, with Poujadisme flaring up in France in 1953, before vanishing entirely in 1958, much as Giuliano Giannini, Duomo Palunque, had in Italy in the same year, the second wave of movement, then developed in Scandinavia in the 1960s, largely focused on reducing taxes, but with parties that only lasted as long as their founder. Finally, the third wave started in the late 1970s and early 1980s, with that wave setting down firmer foundations in France, Austria, Switzerland, Belgium, and Denmark before spreading, albeit to varying degrees, elsewhere. A feature of these movements has always been an at best ambivalent relationship to neo-fascist organizations. Personnel have often migrated between them. With the exception of Italy's Cinque Stelle, it is rare to find a populist mass movement in Western Europe which does not have at least some veterans of neo-fascist organizations in its senior ranks. Until recently, another feature of these movements was their electoral instability. Like the Front National in the 1980s and 1990s, they would experience very large electoral swings. At the same time, the organizations themselves were often unstable. In Italy, for example, parties such as Alianza Nazionale would compete with many rivals with sudden changes in their relative rankings. That may seem to have changed. The movements are somewhat more entrenched giving them a permanent and more stable mass space than they have ever previously had. The third strand of populism is that which has emerged in Central and Eastern Europe and in the countries of the former Soviet Union. These movements are themselves very diverse. They range from parties composed of former communists, such as the Social Democratic Party in Romania, through to parties controlled by oligarchs, such as Wesley Majewski's real party in Bulgaria. What they fear are all the marks of the end of empire phenomena, including belligerent nationalism, incidental claims on labor, and xenophobia, elected not only at foreigners, but also at domestic minorities, such as the Turks in Bulgaria, the Russians in Latvia, and almost everywhere. 
It is in those respects that songs often openly acknowledge continuity with movements that flourished in the 1930s. Finally, the fourth strand is that in developing countries, with variants that stretch from the traditional economic populism of Latin America through to newer movements in Asia, including those of Paxin Sinawatra in Thailand and of President Rodrigo Duterte in the Philippines. Populism in these countries was historically oriented to income redistribution. More recently, populist parties have also campaigned against cronyism, corruption, and rampant crime. What could be clear from that listing is populism's remarkable spread and its manifold shapes and sizes. That it is so widespread reflects the fact that its democracies perhaps stunted twin. Wherever the principle is accepted of rule by the people, it is only natural that appeals to what the United States is called the alt-right can now be found from France through to Russia. But while that homogenization may be occurring, the causes and consequences continue to differ. In terms of the causes, economic grievances no doubt play a substantial role. But there is, I believe, an important element of truth in the argument Richard Hofstadter and Taylor Martin Lipset developed in the 1950s and 1960s, which emphasized abrupt but enduring declines in perceived social status as the trigger for backlash movements. To say that is not to suggest that the problems are in any way imaginary. Rather, my point is simply that they go far beyond the merely economic, which makes them all the harder to remedy. What is every bit as important as understanding the causes is to understand populism's consequences. Not everyone has viewed plebeian revolts as bad things. Machiavelli, for example, argued in his discourses on Libya that periodic struggles with the common people were crucial to tempering the arrogance of the patrician class and so strengthened rather than weakened the republic. Equally, and perhaps even more surprisingly, Montesquieu, in his considerations of the causes of the greatness of the Romans and their decline, said that the Roman Republic had been admirable because abuses of power could be checked by means of the spirit of the people. Being quote-unquote, constantly subject to agitation, he claimed, is the hallmark of free government. Popular tumults may unsettle those governments, but a tranquil republic would be no better than the concord of Asian despotism. And if we see any union there, he wrote, it is not citizens who are united, but dead bodies buried next to one another. The genius of republics, he claimed, produces harmony between clashing opposites, just as dissonances in music cooperate in producing overall concord. But it would be unwise to listen only to those voices, no matter how much we respect them. History shows there are plenty of good reasons to fear populism, not only for the economic damage it wreaks, but also for its affinity to authoritarianism. We see that increasingly in Central and Eastern Europe, 
as well as in the countries of the former Soviet Union. Throughout those regions, weak, relatively poorly institutionalized democracies are being further undermined, albeit at different rates. Despite myriad assurances to the contrary, it is not unreasonable to expect similar processes to operate were Marine Le Pen elected in France or Cinque Stelle to obtain a blocking majority in Italy. That is not solely or mainly because it is difficult to trust leaders such as Marine Le Pen or Beppe Grillo. Rather, it is because of the inherent dynamics of populism. The salient feature of the populist program is that it is internally inconsistent and unachievable. At the same time, it promises redemption and a break with the past. Any attempt to put the program into effect therefore runs headlong into contradictions. Given the movement's Manichean view of the world and its plebiscitary trust, those contradictions are invariably attributed to cabals and conspiracy. Instead of moderating their thrusts, populist movements consequently tend to radicalize as the difficulties mount. But that radicalization inevitably clashes with the democratic process. Much the same, in my view, is at least possible with the presidency of Donald Trump. I do not believe Trump is an authoritarian, nor do I think for a moment that the institutions of the United States will buckle under his administration. But none of that detracts from the fact that his program is politically and economically unfeasible, yet his plebiscitary relationship to his followers makes it hard for him to back off commitments and tone down conflicts. The impetus that pushes him towards radicalization will therefore become stronger over time, provoking a reaction which could be as profoundly harmful for the United States as it would be for the broader world. Nor is the harm from populism limited to that caused directly by the populist movements themselves. There is rather a coarsening of political argument, an ever more pronounced tone of anger, intolerance, exasperation, and even violence, which spreads from populism to the atmosphere of politics as a whole. While populism is by no means the only cause of the degradation of political debate, it both feeds on it and pushes it further. Unfortunately, it would be naive to expect populism to abate, much less disappear. The late 19th century sociologists who worried about the demonic force of the mob and the crowd predicted that the crowd would wane as society matured to be replaced by an entirely more thoughtful entity, a diversity of publics sufficiently numerous to compete and sufficiently stable to encourage deliberation. But Freud, who witnessed the lynch parties of the anti-Semites, was less confident the modern world would ever find safety from numbers. Far from being an atavistic reversion, he wrote, it was precisely in highly ordered societies that crowds would most readily form, offering an entirely illusory redemption from the frustrations and disappointments of everyday life.
Publics might well emerge, but they would all too readily collapse back into the mob. Indeed, the crowd will be with us for so long as we retain democratic societies. And so will that most promiscuous of concepts, the people, along with the myth of its redemptive value as the ever-present monitor for political power. That myth is not completely divorced from reality. It reflects the tensions and stresses uh, of democratic societies. The answers the populists offer to those tensions and stresses may be, in fact, in my view, invariably are, wrong. But the questions are all too often valid. If they remain unaddressed, we can hardly complain of the consequences. Too many of our societies seem unable to rise to the challenge of addressing those questions. For so long as they are, populism will rage. It is the task of all those who, like I'm sure all of you, worry about the future of democracy to take populism seriously. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Henry, and Henry is very kind of you to take questions from the floor, so I'll open it straight up. Uh, Henry. Um, uh, you gave six allegedly canonical de defining characteristics of populism, and I would have thought, to my mind, that they would also have belonged to fascism, and I'm left wondering, is fascism just a hard form of populism, a view which I, you seem to be in two minds upon? And if fascism isn't just a hard form of populism, what is the distinguishing criteria or criterion of fascism from populism? Well, uh, to, to my mind, uh, a distinguishing feature of populism is that it is typically very off, very difficult to locate it in a traditional left-right spectrum. Well, so is fascism. Yeah. So populist parties combine uh, different elements from the left and from the right, and indeed it is that combination which... Uh, most often makes their programs incoherent and hence unachievable. And you see that, for instance, with Marine Le Pen's Front National in France, which sort of offers to increase pensions, uh, maintain public expenditure at very high levels, yet cut taxes and reduce public debt. Uh, so you can have some of those, but you can't have all of those at once. Uh, now, with respect to your question, I think part of the difficulty is that fascism itself is a protean phenomenon uh, whose boundaries are ill-defined and which comes in many uh, quite distinct varieties. But I don't think of fascism as primarily based on the appeal to the people, though it shares some of the features of populism. Fascism has typically been based, been based on something else. Uh, for instance, the appeal to the nation, the appeal to the race, or some combination of the appeal to the nation and the race. And you can have populism, 
which entirely lacks those appeals. But it's very difficult to find a form of fascism which does not take those appeals as absolutely central elements. So, yes, it's true that the boundaries between the two can be ill-defined. And that's why I said in Western Europe uh, there is quite a bit of movement between neo-fascist parties or, or entities of some kind, organizations, and some of the populist movements. Equally, in Central and Eastern Europe in particular, there's uh, often uh, 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 an admitted continuity between contemporary populist movements and the not necessarily fascist, but fascisant movements of the 1930s. You see that also to, to, to some extent in the Baltic states. Uh, so the boundaries between the two uh, are not rigid. Uh, and indeed, in some cases, there's an interdependence of a kind between them. For instance, in Hungary, it's clear that Jobbik is a very different phenomenon from Fidesz. Uh, Jobbik is uh, uh, a fascist party. They parade around in uniforms. They have a cult of violence that Fidesz does not have. Okay? And that is, again, a feature. Uh, the, the myth of violence, the Sorelian myth of violence, which is uh, a, a central feature of, of fascism. Okay? Uh, Fidesz entirely lacks that myth of violence. Uh, yet, in a way, uh, there's a bit of a symbiotic relationship between Fidesz and Jobbik, uh, because Jobbik is the unpalatable face of change. Fidesz therefore positions itself as the moderates relative to Jobbik that is completely unacceptable. And you find uh, a very similar dynamic in quite a few other countries in Central and Eastern Europe, as well as, uh, as in the Baltics. So that's a terribly long-winded way of replying to your question, but I do think that there is a distinction between them, though those borders are porous, and that porous nature of the border is one of the causes for great concern. Uh, any more questions? Yeah. It's open. Uh, thank you very much, Professor, for this uh, talk, and you gave us uh, like a very broader perspective of um, populism. But I just want to uh, ask about the uh, the French um, election, the Le Pen. I would say she's a nationalism. So, what your opinion, like uh, our political leader, like the leader govern our country or OECD country, like? Should, should, should they be uh, some sort of nationalism or should be globalist? Because my understanding is like average man like me, um, all these so-called uh, political leaders, if they want to be a, a globalist, then they have to be funded by global talks. But they're not. They're funded by local talks. So I just don't see their justification. Uh, if they, you know, get paid for us, then that would be fine. I'm not sure I agree with you, or I'm sure I don't agree with you. Uh, in the sense that uh, uh, it seems to me that the great benefits 
extend that openness as much as we can. And so in that sense, it doesn't seem to me that your taxes are going because of globalization to benefit people elsewhere. Rather, I think what globalization does is it helps lift our income, not of everyone, and that is a real problem, but it helps lift our incomes, uh, and in the process allows us to achieve much more with whatever resources we have. Basically, uh, we can have the voice, which is the democratic process of expression, 
is to leave. Okay. Now, what's happened in the EU is that the EU has had virtually no mechanisms that were efficacious for voice, okay. has secured very low levels of loyalty, and hence the reaction to problems has inevitably taken the form of considerable pressures for exit. If those pressures for exit with everything that has been put in place institutionally to keep the union together. And that tension between the force of the pressure for exit and the constraints on exit that comes from the institutional structure has become talking about people that you and I would deride. I'm talking about people like the Gasperi, Adenauer, the Gaulle. That was a fundamental motive for them. Uh, it was with their eyes open that they created the structure which is now there. But that structure has come back to bite. And the real question is uh, uh, what will be done to resolve the tensions it inevitably creates. The politics that I follow closely are those in Australia. And I wonder if you could use some Australian examples to illustrate populism. Well, to, you know, to, I mean, to my mind, uh, uh, there has uh, been a vein of Australian populism, which uh, has almost always been there, uh, uh, and has changed in, in its shape and its consistency uh, over time. Uh, perhaps the most enduring form of that populism was agrarian socialism, it was the belief that uh, 
uh, and our agrarian socialism is very similar to the agrarian socialism you find in Scandinavia or the old agrarian parties of Central and Eastern Europe. Uh, so it, it's an agrarian socialism that maintains that uh, 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 there's uh, essentially an urban elite and that urban elite exploits the real wealth creators who are invariably the people on the land and that the solution to that is to have schemes that uh, prevent market forces from working uh, against the people on the land okay, uh, and, on the contrary, redistribute income to them. Now, that agrarian socialist streak, together with you know, the whole, at times, fluctuating ideology of country-mindedness, okay, uh, uh, um, has been there in entrenched form since at least the 1920s. Indeed, you could, it, it, it coincides almost, well, certainly to the year, with the rise of agrarian parties in Europe. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, what has changed, really, more recently, is that as the uh, institutions of agrarian socialism have been uh, reformed or to some extent dismantled. Okay? Uh, the pressures that underpinned uh, those populist movements have remained. Uh, indeed, in some ways, they've become even stronger. Uh, but they now sit uneasily with what was always their home, namely the country party, or as it's now called, the national party. And as a result, they've taken other varieties, uh, such as Bob Cacker, uh, to, 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 to some extent uh, uh, Mr. Palmer, uh, and uh, more recently, and again episodically, uh, Pauline Hanson. Uh, now, as I said, uh, to uh, classify those as populist is, is, is to, to criticize the solutions, uh, to criticize the answers they give, not the questions they raise. And the questions they raise are serious questions. Hmm? But what has happened at the moment, and no doubt will spread uh, more broadly than the traditional constituencies that those movements represented is that we have struggled to find sensible solutions to those questions other than throwing money at whoever claims to be the victim, thus elevating victimhood to a highly desirable social status. <laughs>